a reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to his officials and to all his whole land, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. Every week uh, we get um, things emailed to us, and uh, this week I got this uh, thing mailed a couple, from a couple of the small groups that you're in out there. <laughs> So technically, Moses is the first man to download files from the cloud using a tablet. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> we do have uh, a lot in common with Moses. Um, you know, in life, sometimes you win some, and sometimes you lose some. Unless you are Constantine Relio. This is from the Associated Press in Bucharest, Friday March 16th, 2018. A Romanian court has rejected a man's claim that he is alive after he was officially registered as dead. A court spokesman said on Friday that 63-year-old Constantin Riliu lost his case in the northeast city of Vasuli because he appealed too late. The ruling is final. Media reported Relio went to Turkey in 1992 for work and lost contact with his family in Romania. Hearing no news from her husband, his wife managed to get a death certificate for him in 2016. Turkish authorities located Relio this year and with expired papers decided to deport him. When he arrived in Romania, he discovered that he had been declared dead. He is quoted as saying, I am officially dead, although I'm alive. I have no income, and because I am listed as dead, I can't do anything. <laughs> you win some, you lose some, and then you're dead. You know, we have a lot in common with Moses, tablets, cloud. The other thing we'll have in common with Moses is that we're going to be dead. Today we 
look at the funeral of Moses. Moses' story ends in the same place that your story is going to end, dead. So the question to wrestle with this morning is, when you're dead, are you done? Is it over? Is there more? What happens when we die? You know, it's been a great series. This is the last week. My takeaway from Moses has been this. Every time you sit down to study Moses, you end up experiencing God until his funeral. And now when we sit down to look at Moses, God says, finally, finally, look at Moses. And when you look at Moses and his death, you're going to see yourself. Specifically, the three challenges that we have in common with Moses. The challenge of our sin, the challenge of our death, and the challenge of a life of significance and how do we make our life count. So at the funeral of Moses, as we sit down, we're going to ask those questions. What do we do with our sin? What do we do about our death? And how do we make our life significant? Let's attend the funeral. We begin talking about Moses' sin. I won't read this again, as Kelly's already read it for us, but I want to point out a couple of things. First, the larger context, the setting. Finally, finally, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, having to wonder because of their doubt of God's goodness and power, the generation is dying out. Israel is in camp now on the east side of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over the Jordan to the west to the promised land. And then we see Moses. The last picture we have of Moses, who is 120 years old, is of him climbing a mountain, a 2,300-peak mountain. Last night, someone was in the congregation who has actually been to the top of Mount Nebo and seen the, the view from there and said it took, then they hiked from the bottom. I guess you cannot drive to the top. They hiked, and it was a five-mile hike with switchbacks. So I don't know if Moses took the switchbacks. Either way, this was a, an incredible hike for a 120-year-old man. It's the last picture we have of him. He's there on the top. It seems that God comes down, and they have this beautiful moment together. In fact, I'd like for all of us to experience it with Moses. Would you stand up? We're going to stand on top of Mount Nebo. I want us first to turn to the north, which is that way. Would you turn around and look north? course no snow on Mount Nebo so ignore that part out there <laughs> look north do you see it it's Dan it, it, it's Gilead it's Naphtali it, it's there in the north I promised you Moses I promised that I would give that to Israel do you see it and then take a quarter turn to your left do you see it in the west do you see it there's there's Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, of course, we know that all these names were given after the fact that someone added this to the book of Deuteronomy uh, after Moses had died because the land had not been given out yet. But Moses, do you see it? It's Ephraim and Manasseh. And look, way, way out there, 100 miles to the west, do you see? It's the Mediterranean Sea. Do you see it? And then another quarter turn to the south. Oh, now you're looking at Judah. Judah means praise. Judah is where the king would come from, David and Jesus. Judah is the promise. Do you see it? And now if you turn all the way around, do you see the whole view, Moses? Moses, 
Do you remember when I made this promise? I made it to Abraham 500 years ago. I made it to Isaac, his son. I made it to Jacob, his son. 500 years. Do you think that's slow? It's slow to you because you have to experience things as they come. To me, all time is present. It's always been right here. Moses, I keep my promises. My covenants are sure. Do you see it, Moses? Oh, and Moses, sorry, one more thing. You can't go in. You have to sit down. You, you can't go in, Moses. You won't cross. What? Moses has left this unruly, stiff-necked bunch of people for 40 years with meekness, with excellence. He's led well. What do you mean you can't go in? Moses, why? There's two reasons why. One's a lesser, more implicit reason. One's a big kind of explicit reason. The first reason Moses can't cross and go into the promised land is Deuteronomy chapter 3. Moses is talking. He says, at that time, I pleaded with the Lord. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country, and Lebanese, this means a lot to Moses. He is disappointed that he can't go in. He's pleading with God to go in. But then Moses says to the people, but because of you, oh, if we could go back, sorry. Tara, I wasn't finished. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord says, like a good parent. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. What's referred to there is in Deuteronomy 1. Daniel preached on it last week that the Israelites did not believe the promise that even though the promised land was full of giant, scary people, they doubted God's power and they doubted God's goodness. They didn't trust his character and thus this generation would not go in. And because Moses is the leader of this generation, as is true of all leaders, he suffered the consequences of his people. They won't go in. Moses, as their leader, won't go in. But there's a bigger, more explicit reason that's given to us in Deuteronomy 32. God says, this is because both of you, Aaron and Moses, broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin. And because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites, therefore you will not see the land. I'm sorry. You will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. This is referring to an incident that happened in Numbers chapter 20. Miriam has just died. They're in the desert of Zin, and there's no water. And the people begin to panic. They begin to cry out. Some even begin to rebel against Moses and Aaron. You brought us here. We're going to die in the desert. We had it better in Egypt. You know, the whole thing again, the whole thing again. Moses and Aaron consult with the Lord, and the Lord says, okay, I'm going to show my power, display my goodness one more time. Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. Water will come out. I'll solve the thirst and people will see my glory. Moses went up 
And for whatever reason, he didn't speak to the rock. Remember what he did? He struck it twice with the staff. God said, speak. Moses struck. You mean to tell me that's why Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land? I mean, he's probably grieving his sister, who just, he, there's probably muscle memory here because there was a previous incident at Rephidim where Moses was actually instructed to strike the rock in Exodus 17. Give the guy a break. This is why I don't like God sometimes. <laughs> you mean to tell me that's it? That Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land after 40 years of sterling leadership because he struck the rock when God said, speak. How do you explain this? I'd like to try. I think what's going on here is the human propensity to minimize God's holiness at the same time minimize human sinfulness. God's holiness, human sinfulness. Let's unpack those. God is very specific about what's happened here. If you go back to Deuteronomy 51, uh, 32, 51, because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Even in Numbers 20, God was again very specific about why Moses can't go in. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as, say it, holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. God is holy. And what Moses did was to be presumptuous and flagrant with God's holiness. Never before in biblical history had anyone meddled with a miracle until this moment. God is holy. Holy means that God is set apart unto himself and all that is pure, righteous, just, and loving. And holy means that God is set apart from all that is impure and unholy and unloving and unjust, separated to himself and anything that is not those things he separated from. Now, when the biblical authors try to convey this to us, they resort to language tools. The first one is repetition. We've seen this throughout Scripture. God is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God in his glory fill the entire earth. It's repeated three times on several occasions. Why? Because it's not just that God is pure, but every one of his attributes are holy and set apart. In other words, there's no one who loves like God loves. There's no one who's as powerful as God is powerful. There's no one who's all-knowing as much as God is all-knowing. Every one of his attributes is set apart unto a one-of-a-kind existence. God is holy, and, all of his and in all of his attributes he is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. 
And then another language tool the biblical writers refer to is metaphor. When they want to describe his holiness, they use the metaphor most commonly, fire. Hebrews 11, God is a consuming fire. So it's these qualities of fire that describe God's holiness. So what does that mean? That means that when we say God is holy, it means holiness means that his being is uncontainable. It means his purposes are unstoppable. It means his holiness is untouchable. It means his anger roars with intention. It means justice is the fire line. It means that the zeal to see us transformed is unquenchable. It means that his love is inextinguishable as fuels from within. It means his path is mystery. It means his power is irresistible. And so we come waltzing in here on a Sunday morning in our casual mindset and we think, oh yes, we get to encounter God and meet with God today. Do we really have any idea what we're doing here and who we're meeting Annie Dillard was right in teaching a stone to talk when she said, if we really understood what we're doing, we'd have crash helmets on and life preservers under the seat. We are like toddlers playing around with a chemistry set. We're like ants who are trying to figure out how the watermelon got to the picnic. We have no idea who we are dealing with. He is holy. Holy, holy. But we minimize it. We minimize his holiness. We think God is just like us. We evaluate his moves and his turns in our lives and his decisions about an old guy who can't go into the promise and we think, oh, that's so unfair, I would never do that. Do you know why? It's because you're not God. What kind of God do you want? A God you can understand? A God with whom you agree about everything? I would submit to you, that's not God, that's you. You want you. Tim Keller, in a his book we have our leadership group read, um, The Reason for God. He writes, in any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. I see elbows moving. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate relationship. Remember the movie, The Stepford Wives? The husbands of Stepford, Connecticut decide to have their wives turn into robots who would never cross the wills of their husbands. A Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibilities or crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making, 
Not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. We tend to minimize God's holiness. I want to remind Waterstone this morning that when we started, we being the church, 2,000 years ago, remember how we started? What came down? Tongues of fire. The consuming fire. And every time we meet and every time we proclaim Jesus as Lord and every time we gather and pray in his name, it's fire. The Lord wants to burn those impurities from our hearts. He wants to burn the racism out and the greed out and, and, and the selfishness out and the lust out. He wants to, to burn us and it hurts, but out of that burnt growth comes new life and it's love and the fire is good and it's mercy and it's growth and we need that fire and we need it at Waterstone. And so we say God is holy and we won't minimize him and make him one of us. We also tend to minimize our sin. So a crash course on sin. Ready? Couple minutes. What is sin? Sin is anything in thought, word, and deed which falls short of God's expectations and intentions. James says that when you commit one sin, you break all of the law. So one sin makes us sinners, and no sinners can survive in the burning, gas-guzzling glory of God in the condition of a sinner. We'll die will come undone. One sin makes us a sinner and we break all sins. And then think for a moment about what sin uh, is in terms of volume in our life. How much do we sin, right? I don't know about you, but I can't keep the great commandment for five minutes. To love God with all my mind, my heart, my strength, my time. I can't keep that for five minutes. How about you? And then, pulling out an old illustration I learned years ago when I went through training for an evangelism course. It's called the three sins a day illustration. Some of you will remember this. It starts this way. How many sins a day do you commit? What would you guess? Thought, word, deed. How many? How many? What's a good day for you? 10? Do you commit 10 sins a day? Some of us might be better than that. Okay, let's go with three. You commit three sins a day. Okay, let's do the math. Three sins a day is how many per year? Thousand? You live to be 70 years old. How many sins in your life? 70,000 sins. And we think God's just gonna look the other way? God is holy. We are not. And let's remember what sin actually is. I'll put two words on it for us. Cosmic treason. We are disagreeing and stomping on the intentions of the one who made us, who gives us our next breath, and to whom we owe everything. And we're saying, God, 
Your commandments are not good. My judgments are better. I'll live the way I want to live, which was the first sin and every sin. But we tend to minimize what sin is, why we do it, and the repercussions. We do. We go around saying, oh, God, you know, you know how stressed I am. You know how, how, you know, it's just been really, really hard. So my anger, it's understandable. So, uh, you know, I hit the rock, yeah. Or we think, oh, God, I'm so lonely. I am so lonely, so I need to resort to these practices, these hurtful things in order to soothe my soul and, and, and cope. I, I need these things. So, we, you know, we hit the rock, but it's not a big deal. I, I need it. I mean, we, we, we're pretty good at blaming we're pretty good at justifying. We minimize our sin. Here's the mystery of sin. This is Hans Kung, the great Catholic theologian, he once said, the mystery of sin is not that we deserve to die. The mystery of sin is that the sinner continues to exist. That's the good news. Moses, in his flagrant sin, where he violates the holy character of God, gets to sit on a mountaintop and die with God. God did not leave him in his sin. God does not leave us in our lives, no matter how bad we mess up. God will not leave us in our sin. But the wages of sin is death. And that is the second challenge we hear about ourselves at the funeral of Moses. God does not leave him in his sin. He's there on the mountaintop with him. But the wages of sin is death. And in verses five through eight, here's the funeral. Um, I'm not going to, again, read this. You can reread it, refresh your, your memory. I want to point out two things. First, there's not uh, much death in Moses, right? There's not much death in Moses. He's 120 years old, but his eyesight is still 20-20, and he's still able to have sex. It's there. He's vigorous. Moses does not die of old age. Do you know why Moses dies? The Hebrew literally reads, Moses died at the mouth of God. Now the rabbis, even today, believe that what actually happened is that God there on the mountaintop with Moses kissed Moses and he died. The kiss of death. I don't know. What I do know is this. You will not die of old age. You will not die of an accident. You will not die of a disease. Do you know why you will die? You will die at the mouth of God. Everything in our life, even our death, is encompassed by his purposes and love. And you too will die at the mouth of God. He controls every single breath you have, you have left, and he will control your last breath. 
and you will die at the mouth of God. The other thing I want to point out, not only is there not much death in Moses, but there's no trace of Moses' dead body. Isn't this a tender moment when God himself buries Moses in a place unknown even today? Why? I think first so that the most revered figure in Israel's history would not be worshiped and enshrined. But even more, it's that God was taking care of every detail of the death of his saint. In fact, this is what Jude gets to in this kind of weird verse. It's a little cryptic. Stay with me for a moment. You'll think this is a really strange turn at first, but I'll try and explain it. Jude 9 is some commentary on Moses' funeral. But even the archangel Michael, now in Revelation 12, we hear Michael is the top angel. He's the boss of all the angels. Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, I don't know. I don't know what that means except the devil, the prince and power of the air, the lord of this realm currently is trying to take Moses away from God somehow. Disputing with the devil about the body of Moses did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but Michael said, the Lord rebuke you, which is a quote from Zechariah 3, about how strong God is even over all the, the heavenly hosts and the demonic realm. The, the word of Michael, sent by God, protects Moses' body in its death. The point is this. God will not leave us in life. God will not lose us in death. Nothing can separate us from the love and the power of God. So let me come right at you. Have you settled the question about your death? What's going to happen when you die? Do you think about it? You should. It will be here before you're, (laughs) you know it. Some in the room this morning I know your worldview is this, and by the way, many believe this, and many smart people believe this. When you die, you're done, period. Worm food, it's over, you're done. If we were having coffee, I would hear you out, ask you why you believe that. I mean, every story that you believe about life after death is a story, you can't prove it. It's a story, I'd wanna know why you believe that story, and everyone believes a story. Everyone, you've never lived one moment of your life without faith in a story. Why do you believe that story? And then I would gently nudge to think about two things. First, hunger. I mean, if we are just evolved animals, why do we have this gnawing of hunger for things like morality and beauty and love and transcendence. Why are there words in the English language and frankly in every language that try to describe something supernatural or, or beyond understanding, but still there? Where does that hunger come from? The second thing I'd like to ask you is history, hunger history, right? Jaroslav Pelikan, who died in 2006, was a preeminent historian at Yale. He once made this astounding statement that if you took a magnet over all of human history and that magnet began to pull up everything with Jesus' name or influence on it, there'd be very little left. 
How do you account for that? Jesus' preeminent place in history. What do you do with that evidence? That's what I'd like to ask you. Now, for the rest of us, we might believe there is life after death. What I really want to be sure is, are you trusting the right guy to get you there? The best description of the right guy I ever heard was from a black preacher in the heart of Chicago named James Ford. James Ford once said that you cannot play possum with death. What did he mean? Sometime that week previous to when he preached, he had been watching the Discovery Channel and they had a special on possums. Did you know that the possum is a uniquely lazy creature in the animal kingdom? It never builds its own den. Uniquely lazy, but also uniquely smart in the animal kingdom because the possum knows how to track other animals. And it knows that if there's tracks going into the den, but there's no tracks coming out, that whatever built that den is still in there. But it knows that if there's tracks going in and tracks coming out, then that den is empty. Happy home. James Ford says, when it comes to my king and my savior, I want someone who has tracks going in and tracks coming out. Because if there's tracks coming in and tracks coming out, that den is empty. So he said, when it comes to Confucius, there are tracks going in, but there's no tracks coming out. He can't be my king and my savior. When it comes to the Buddha, there's tracks going in, but there's no tracks coming out. Buddha can't be my king and my savior. When it comes to Muhammad, there's tracks going in, but there's no tracks coming out. He's still in there. He can't be my king and my savior. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, there are tracks going in and there are tracks going out. He gets to be my king and my savior. Tracks going in, he died. Tracks coming out, he lives. Tracks going in, he suffered. Tracks coming out, he's sovereign. Tracks going in, he received death. Tracks coming out, he rebuked death. Tracks going in, misery. Tracks coming out, majesty. Tracks going in, pierced. Tracks coming out, praised. Tracks going in, grief. Tracks coming out, glory. Tracks going in, crown. Thought God about cross. Tracks coming out, crown. Tracks going in, thrones. Tracks coming out, Thorns, tracks coming out, thrones, tracks going in. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, tracks coming out. He is the Lion of Judah that's directing history to one moment when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's my king. That's who I'm trusting. That's who I'm trusting to get me out of my grave. How about you? We have a lot in common with Moses. Tablets connected to the cloud. The knowledge that God will not leave us in life and in our sin. The knowledge that God will not lose us in death. And there's one more. A life of significance. Very briefly, I want you to look at this verse, and I'm really interested in two words. There's a lot here. 
This face-to-face relationship Moses had with God fed a whole nation. As a leader, that reminds me that most of the things I do to be an effective leader in a church, that you do to be an effective leader in your family and in your job, most of the things that keep you effective, no one will ever see. They happen before you get up here. You and God, face-to-face. But what I really want to underline is that that sentence, Moses did, Moses did, Moses did. Up until this point, every time the miracles of Egypt were mentioned, it's God did them. But at Moses' funeral, it's told Moses did them. Do you know what that means? That means that God shares the stage with us. That means that everything we do to point people to God, everything to do we do to make our lives an experience of God for anyone we encounter is God sharing the stage. That gives us significance like no other. Every time you invite your neighbors over to have a seat at your table, every time you do take the time to listen to someone in your cube, every time you go out of your way to be the experience of God to someone else who's needing, hurting, lost, you are sharing the stage with God. We all know God does everything. He makes his gospel effective, the good news. But God says, no, when you did it, you did it too. Everything God does and how he writes history, he writes with crooked sticks like you and me. That is significant. Do you want that? Do you want to know that God will not leave you in life? Do you want to know that God will not lose you in death? Do you want to know that he will lead you to the promised land with a life rich in significance because you pointed to Jesus? If you do, now's the time. The Bible tells us how. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Promised land. So could we bow our heads for a moment? If you're here this morning, I don't know what brought you, maybe your first time here, or maybe you've never before done this when you've just bowed before God and said, Jesus, I see it, and I see you. You are Lord. I give you my trust. I give you my heart. I give you my allegiance. I'm yours. So in the silence of this moment, and if you've never done this before, you feel you need to do it now, just simply say, Jesus is Lord. And in saying that, God gives you gifts, the gifts of forgiveness, the gifts of eternal life, the gifts of significance. Receive them. They're yours. He will not leave you in life. He will not lose you in death. He will give you a life of significance and then take you to the promised land. If you've prayed that prayer, Holy Moses, welcome to the kingdom. You're there. Let's all of us stand and can we proclaim this in song with a song, 10,000 Reasons. Let's sing what we've just heard.